morning to those who are listening in the morning, or good afternoon or good evening to those who might be listening at other times. Today we want to look at uh, the last two miracles in this series of miracles found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. The passage we'll be looking at is verse 27 through verse 34. But first, I will test your knowledge of history. 1928. What happened in 1928? In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, the first antibiotic. It uh, seemed like the miracle drug. It uh, could cure uh, infections that uh, people could never cure before, and it saved probably millions of lives. Uh, yet, over time, we found that antibiotics have their limits because as people were using more and more penicillin, bacteria started developing resistance to penicillin and it wasn't as effective and so people came up with more antibiotics and uh, bacteria eventually develop infect, uh, resistance to those antibiotics as well. So it just became Part of our understanding of medicine that you don't want to just keep using antibiotics all the time. You want to be careful and just use them when needed, how needed. Sometimes they'll test the bacteria, they'll take a sample of it to see which drug it would be most susceptible to. As uh, we're looking at Jesus' miracles, people often feel similarly toward miracles, that miracles are the cure for all as far as getting people to believe in Jesus. Uh, if you've tried to witness to people about Jesus, some of them will say, well, if I could see a miracle, then I will believe. And so it would seem to us that miracles would be the miracle cure for unbelief. And yet we will find as we look at this passage and think about the end of these two chapters, that miracles are not the miraculous cure for unbelief. And their impact seems to get reduced over time, just as in the case of antibiotics. With that, let's look at our passage, Matthew 9, 27 through 34. And as uh, we look at it and see, uh, what I mentioned, the reduced impact of miracles. Obviously, we want to try to think why. Why? Are miracles not enough? And, uh, and how we can apply it to our lives today. When Jesus departed from there, if you remember, Jesus just finished raising a little girl from the dead, restoring her to her parents. <coughs> It says, when he departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, 
Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So we see here three groups of people. First, we see those who are healed, particularly the blind men. There's also a mute and demon-possessed man, but we know much less about him, so we won't really spend time talking about him. And then we see uh, what are called here the multitudes. And finally, we see the Pharisees. And each of these groups seems to have a different response to Jesus' miracles. <clears throat> First, the blind men, we would note, have never seen a miracle. They just heard about Jesus' miracles. Maybe not so differently than how you or I might hear about Jesus' miracles. They're recorded in God's Word. People might share them with other people. Um, and uh, so these blind men heard about Jesus' miracles. And uh, in this passage, they exhibit a remarkable a remarkable faith in Jesus. Uh, first of all, they, are, they call him the son of David. Son of David is a title for the Messiah. And this is the first time it is used in the Gospel of Matthew. So they are the first ones, first people, who are clearly recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, then they follow Jesus as Jesus walks away. And this, this seems a little bit strange, right? Usually somebody comes to Jesus for healing. Jesus heals them. In this case, Jesus is walking away from them as they crying out to him, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. <clears throat> and in fact, they follow him all the way to his house, which is remarkable considering they were blind. And it doesn't seem that anybody is leading them. So they must be hearing his footsteps ahead of them. Maybe they're hearing him talking to his disciples. They're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, is walking away and they're following him. And that's remarkable, right? Some might get discouraged and say, it doesn't seem like he wants to heal us. Or maybe he can't heal us. As far as we know, Jesus has not yet healed anybody out of blindness. Maybe they want could wonder, well, can he really heal the blind as he heals others? And yet they persist. The faith uh, is, is, is strong, and they follow him all the way uh, to his house. So, so in those two ways, the faith uh, in him is remarkable. And um, the other thing that is remarkable about their story is that Jesus is stressing 
that they tell <coughs> no one about this miracle. He doesn't forbid them from talking about him. We see in verse 31 that when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. But he doesn't say that they, they told anyone that Jesus actually healed them. So there's no evidence of disobedience. But why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? Uh, actually, David already shared, I think, this verse, or at least this concept, in his message last week. But Jesus uh, speaks of it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Uh, this is part of his condemnation of people for not, not believing or really not repenting <coughs> of their sins and, and believing in the Lord Jesus in spite of his miracles. He says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven... They were exalted to heaven in that Jesus was in their midst, preaching and doing miracles, will be brought down to Hades. That city will be utterly condemned. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. If the miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum were done in Sodom, uh, that city would have repented, and God would not have had to destroy it. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And here's the principle that to whom more will be given, of him more will be required. The people of Capernaum <coughs> excuse me, had a greater evidence of who Jesus was, who God was, and their need to repent of their sins and to believe in God. Uh, and as a result, God will hold them to a higher standard during judgment. And I believe that is why Jesus is saying to the blind men, see that no one knows it. I don't want another miracle getting published. It's not helping. It's not helping these people. In fact, they will suffer more because these miracles are being performed and they're refusing to respond to those miracles. And that is, uh, that's why Jesus is forbidding the blind men from publishing this miracle. As I said, they still went out and they told people about Jesus, but not about this specific Miracle. The second group of people here that I mentioned are the multitudes. The multitudes seem to be all right when we just look at this passage. They seem to be bringing this uh, mute and demon-possessed man, and when uh, he's, the demon is cast out, the mute spoke, the multitude marveled. It was never seen like this in Israel. So they're amazed. <coughs> And they're acknowledging an important fact that in all of Israel's history, there have never been as many miracles as when Jesus was in the midst and healing people. There have been miracles in the past. Moses uh, performed miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness. Uh, Elijah and Elisha are recorded to do miracles during the time of the prophets. But all of these pale 
in comparison to the miracles that Jesus performed. And that's important because that, that's this big arrow that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Right? It's evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And, uh, and so it seems to be like the multitudes are doing well here, but we know that these are the same multitudes that will one day shout, crucify him, crucify him. So even though here in this passage and elsewhere, they seem to be <coughs> believing in Jesus later on, they will want Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus knows of it. In John chapter 2, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. This is the multitude again. They believed in Jesus' name. They believed that he was the Messiah when they saw the signs, the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So the multitudes <coughs> demonstrate uh, really man's lack of commitment and uh, facilitude. I don't know if that's a word or not. They're, they're fickle. The crowds are, are fickle. These crowds, while at this moment they're cheering Jesus on in his miracles, they will turn away from Jesus. These miracles will have no lasting impact on the multitudes. And then finally, we have the Pharisees, verse 34. <clears throat> but the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees completely turned Jesus' miracles around. Here's this big arrow pointing to him as the Messiah. And they're like, no, no, no. It just shows that he serves Satan. This is the power of Satan at work. So that's the three responses we see to Jesus' miracles, and therefore evidence that miracles really have a limited value, and in this case seems to be a diminishing value in affecting people, in bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus. Why? Why? One illustration I can think of is uh, that of the Titanic. <clears throat> Titanic was this great big boat that uh, some people claimed was unsinkable. unsinkable. One person was foolish enough to make the statement that God himself could not sink this boat, and yet it sunk on its maiden voyage, crossing the Atlantic. And uh, as it was sinking, lifeboats were leaving it. There were lifeboats on deck to help people in case of this emergency. There were not enough lifeboats, um, but the first few lifeboats that left were not even full. People did not want to commit themselves to a lifeboat on uh, the surface of the dark, cold Atlantic waters. They felt most secure inside of this boat <coughs> that was already sinking. And I think that's what we have here in these 
three cases, we have the blind man. The blind man sensed the need for Jesus. Uh, we see it because they asked for his mercy. They said, Son of David, have mercy on us. They recognized that he was the Messiah. They recognized that he was going to bring the messianic blessings, uh, the messianic kingdom, which would include healing from blindness. That's actually in the Old Testament that's, uh, that's prophesied. And they didn't want to be left out. They knew they needed Jesus. The multitude seems to be rather unsure of whether they need Jesus. They uh, didn't suffer from blindness <coughs> or any other particular maladies. Uh, they were entertained by Jesus' miracles. Sometimes they benefited, benefited from Jesus' miracles, as in the feeding of the 5,000. After that, Jesus has a hard time shaking them off. They follow him looking for another meal. And it seems that they were often looking for Jesus to deliver them from the Roman, the Roman masters. The Roman Empire was ruling over Israel at the time, and uh, the multitudes would have probably been more eager to follow Jesus had he suggested that he was there to get rid of the Roman soldiers, <clears throat> which he did not. So we see the multitude uh, is, is vacillating, or vacillating, vacillating, in the, in the faith of Jesus, mostly because they're not sure that they really need Jesus. They're not sure Jesus was offering them anything that they really wanted. The Pharisees, on the other hand, have decided that they did not need Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw there was some sort of a conference where all the <coughs> religious leaders of the area convened at Jesus' house, and that's when Jesus brings, uh, not Jesus, but uh, some friends bring a paralytic friend of theirs, lower him through the roof, and Jesus forgives the man's sins. And the Pharisees say, who can forgive sin but God alone? This man blasphemes. They're rejecting Jesus. They don't want what Jesus is here to offer. They believe Jesus um, was blaspheming. And because of that, it doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus performs, they will not believe in Jesus. Jesus is not offering them anything they want. In fact, he's, uh, he's teaching things that are contrary to what they teach, and they view him as a threat to their religious authority. <clears throat> what is the truth? The truth is that we all need Jesus. So what changed is the perception of need. The blind men were sure they needed Jesus, and so they were willing to get off the Titanic and onto the lifeboat. The multitudes were unsure of it, and so they did not. And the Pharisees were sure they did not need Jesus, and so they, they rejected him. But the truth is they all needed Jesus. What does the Bible Teach. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man on earth who does 
good and does not sin. Romans 3.23, perhaps the best-known verse about this topic, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinners. Next, the Bible teaches that we will all be judged by God for our sins. Ecclesiastes 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God's judgment against sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, <clears throat> but after this, the judgment. We're all appointed to die. We will all be judged after death. And probably the best known passage about the topic, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. When God will sit in judgment, the very creation will try to flee from him. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the reality of every uh, man, woman, and child in the world. We are sinners, that's very clear. God will judge all sin, that is very clear. And that final judgment is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Now, praise God, <clears throat> we're told in this last passage that there is the book of life. And being, having your name written in the book of life is that one thing that will save you from that eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. So there is a way out. There is a way of salvation. There is a lifeboat that can save us from this situation. And the Bible is just as clear about that lifeboat being the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone from his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the amazing things about this verse is it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And we have copies of this verse dated before Jesus came into the world. So we know that this is true. It's one of God's miracles, is the word of God. The prophecies, prophetical work, words of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. A lot of people are like, well, okay, they were written after Jesus came. That's how they're so good. But we know we have copies of the Old Testament predating the time of Jesus. And that is a miracle as great 
as any of the miracles witnessed by people during the time of Jesus. But the key here is the way of salvation. We all, like sheep of Ghana, say we have all sinned, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, iniquity of us all. Jesus paid for our sins. That is the lifeboat. That is what saved us from having to pay for our own sins, is the fact Jesus has already paid for them. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, there is no other way besides for me. And you know what? You can go to every other religion in the world. Not one offers a savior from sin. They will all tell you how you're supposed to live a good life. And they will say, if you live a good life, if you meet this standard, then you will go to heaven, right? But none of them offers a savior for sinner. If we are sinners and God is just and will judge us for our sins and the wages of sin is death, there is no other savior. Nobody has offered himself. Jesus is the only one who offers salvation, forgiveness from sin as the basis of heaven. There is, no, there is no other Savior. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's just one lifeboat living this world. If you need to be saved from your sins, you must be on that lifeboat. That is the only way. So, whether the blind man or the multitude or the Pharisees or we today, we all need Jesus as a Savior. The problem is, <coughs> the problem is that we don't recognize our need. The Pharisees did not recognize their need. They thought they were meeting God's standards of righteousness through the law, whereas the truth was that they failed in keeping the law. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God gave us the law to convict us of our sins, not to save us from our sins. And the multitudes may have been ignorant completely of the law and just more uh, in tune with the physical needs and the spiritual needs. But the truth is we all need, we all need the salvation the Lord Jesus is offering us. Uh, this week, I um, did a final test on my toilet. Over the last few weeks, I've noticed that there was some water underneath the toilet, and I was just wondering, you know, is it possible that my toilet is leaking? I'm like, no, 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 the boys, they're taking a shower right over there, and they're letting the water splash on the floor. So it's not the toilet leaking, it's just water coming out of the shower. And, uh, but for whatever reason, I forget, was it Monday or Tuesday? I finally said, you know what? I need to do a test. I'll just wipe the floor really dry. I'll move everything out of the way so I know there's nothing else that could possibly cause water on the floor other than it coming out of the toilet. 
So I wiped everything clean. I look, I don't see any water coming out. I come back in an hour, there's water on the floor. And so I realize my toilet is leaking and I have the messy job of, of, of fixing it. I tried to get my kids to help and they refused. My wife took pictures of me doing it and uh, sent them to her sisters and they said, oh, we can smell it from here. So, yeah, it's a gross job. And because of that, I didn't want to believe that I had a problem <clears throat> until I was finally willing to face it and test it and find that it really was there. And so that's the way people are with their sin. Occasionally, they'll notice a sin, but they'll just try to wipe it off. They'll try to ignore it. Oh, well, I'm not that bad. This is just, you know, something slipped out. I'll clean it up and everything will be okay. But the truth is those sins that we are committing reveal a problem inside that we are sinners and that we will be judged by God. And it's a shame because God has provided a solution. What if I told you that if you ever have a problem with your toilet, I'll come to your house and I'll clean it up and I'll fix it? fix it, be as good as new. Then you'd be a lot less concerned if you see something that looks like a leak under a toilet. I'll just call Noah. He made an offer. He'll take care of it. Well, we have an offer like that from God. Right? He sent the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. We don't have to, to fear the fact we're sinners because there is a Savior. And so we just need to be honest about our sin and say, yes, I can see it's true what God says in his word that I am a sinner. Praise God, there is a savior for sinners and I can turn to him. I don't have to fear the fact that I am a sinner. It's not a good thing that I am a sinner. I'm not happy that I am a sinner, but I don't have to be afraid of that fact because God sent the Lord Jesus into this world to solve my sin problem. <clears throat> so I don't have to fear it. <clears throat> okay. Applications for today. So we should recognize that uh, miracles have their limits. And by the way, um, Jesus still did miracles after this event. It's not that he completely stopped doing miracles. But uh, <clears throat> he had to balance miracles with other work he was doing, preaching, as we will see coming up. Uh, when I first had any inkling of interest in Christianity, uh, people tried to help me with it, right? Because I had a lot of objections, and uh, God had to overcome those objections in my life. One of them was my... Uh, really denial of there being a God at all. I remember meeting with, um, with Rico. Actually, he invited me over for dinner at his house after I first visited the church. <clears throat> and uh, I had objections to everything in the Bible, everything about God. And he had answers. Uh, and uh, and those answers helped me through 
some of my doubts, and God brought other people into my life until I realized that I had no ground to stand on in rejecting God. They couldn't prove God's existence to me, but I could not prove God's lack of existence. There was no evidence against the existence of God. And that was an important transition point for me in my, in my uh, journey toward becoming a believer was debunking atheism, realizing that my disbelief in God had no grounds whatsoever. And the second thing that uh, uh, Rick did is he showed me prophecies about Jesus like the one we looked at in Isaiah 53. And those prophecies were really powerful in proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And I made a profession <coughs> that I was a Christian at that time because I believed Jesus was the Messiah. And I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. Well, that's a problem because the multitudes in this passage believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and later they would shout that he'd be crucified. So believing Jesus is the Messiah doesn't actually make you a Christian. And what finally changed me was when God finally opened my eyes to my sin problem. And I realized that I was a sinner, and I realized God was going to judge me for my sins, and that's when... I finally understood why Jesus came into this world to save me from my sins. Charles Wesley wrote this, perhaps expressing his amazement when he was finally saved and God opened his eyes to this reality. He wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. I was not interested. I was not interested in the Savior's blood. I wasn't interested in the fact Jesus died. It held no attraction to me whatsoever until God showed me my sin and his judgment against it. And helping me understand, as Charles Wesley wrote, died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That describes the Christian experience, is that understanding that Jesus' death on the cross was for me. And that that is when I became a Christian, I loved him because I realized that he died for me. So, that would be my question to you today. Do you realize that you are really a sinner and that you really are condemned? to eternal death and separation from God. <clears throat> if you don't believe that, you need to ask God to help you see that truth. Because until you see that truth about yourself, you're not going to really believe in Jesus. At most, you'll believe in him as the multitudes did, and then you will wander off 
when it becomes less convenient to believe in Jesus. You need to ask yourself those questions. Am I a sinner? Am I condemned to eternal death because of my sins? And of course, if you see that, then realize that God sent Jesus for you to be your Savior. You don't have to fear sin and death after you understand what it is that Jesus did for you. The application for us as believers, we can, of course, rejoice. We should rejoice. We should praise God for his provision for us in Christ. But we also need to be balanced in how we try to reach uh, an unsaved world. Miracles had their limits. Apologetics have their limits, showing, proving Jesus being the savior of the world out of the scriptures has its limits if the people we try to share with don't recognize the reality of their sin and the reality of God's judgment. So we have to be balanced in our approach. Uh, there's good books like uh, The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus, uh, Firm Foundation, and others that try to help people understand the bad news before you get to the good news. So, so those could be a good resource if there's a person who is interested uh, in making sure they understand the, the gospel from that perspective. <clears throat> we need to uh, appreciate the fact that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for this particular purpose. Jesus told his disciples that uh, the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So he is already in the world. He's been in the world for 2,000 years. And I personally trace my salvation to the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who finally opened my eyes to my need as a sinner. And until God will open your friends or neighbors or family's member to their need, again, uh, no amount of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah will help. We'll point him as the lifeboat, and they will say, thank you, we'd rather stay on the Titanic. Seems safer to us. Until they realize the Titanic is sinking. Until they realize that uh, they uh, and this world are condemned. They will not take Jesus as their savior. Uh, prayer. Pray for people. I sincerely believe that it was people praying for me that uh, move the hand of God on my life. So if you have someone you want to share with, spend time praying for them, for that work of God in their lives. And uh, finally, um, be involved in their lives as a real person. Let them see in you the righteousness of God not just hear it from your mouth. Uh, one of my experiences in somebody getting saved 
And my involvement in it wasn't so much my words as it was my actions. They, they mentioned because of, of what I said or sometimes didn't say, the expression on my face was something that the Lord used in their lives. So it's uh, not just our words, but our very life that becomes a testimony to others. Okay, let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the Savior of sinners and he desires our eternal salvation. He provided for our eternal salvation for us and for every other person uh, in this world. We pray, Lord, for those who listen to this message, if they haven't yet recognized the need for a Savior, that you will show them. And... uh, For us who seek to collaborate with you in your work of salvation in this world, that you help us learn from you the the method of not just trying to prove who Jesus is, but also help people see their needs for you as their Savior. We commit this and ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.